0: Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, a panel of industry insiders and expert observers, David Ginsberg, Professor of Entertainment and Media Law at UCLA, Aaron Mendelson, board member of Writers Guild of America West and co-founder of writer-owned production and distribution company Virtual Artists, Los Angeles Times columnist Patrick Goldstein, and Charles B. Slocum, assistant executive director for the Writers Guild of America West, will dissect the lengthy strike by the Writers Guild of America. Was the will of the Guild underestimated? Why was the Directors Guild able to reach a deal so quickly? Can writers bypass the studios and go directly to the Internet to ply their trade? In this postmortem of the long and costly writer's strike, John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial board moderates as the panelists look at past conflicts, the imperfect negotiation process, and how the Internet might eventually reshape entertainment business models. Recorded before a live audience at the Skirball Cultural Center as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is John Healy.
1: So let's start off, and and I might as well start with Chuck, if I could. Why did the strike happen? Couldn't the writers have taken the route that the directors did and uh, started negotiating months in advance and have polite teas and come to an agreement and everybody goes home happy?
2: (laughs) Well, the short answer to that is we weren't invited to any polite tees. at that point. We were sent into a room with the AMPTP, which are nice enough people individually, but they're the labor lawyers from the studios. And, you know, we basically hit a brick wall in that environment. And uh, I think, you know, when we finally got down to it, it was a, a couple week negotiation when the CEOs were involved. And uh, I think that could have happened. I mean, I, I think it's a fair thing to say that if the deal that we just ratified was on the table on November 4th, there would have been no strike. But that deal was not on the table on November 4th, uh, a whole different deal with a lot of you know, negative changes to our contract, and nobody to really negotiate with to make it better uh, was what we faced. I think that, that's the process answer to that, to that question.
3: And we started in August. I mean, we actually did commence early negotiations in August, two or three months before our contract was up. That's
2: absolutely right, as Aaron says. I think there was a fundamental problem, and, and someone from the, the, the studios would have to answer this, but uh, the, the technologies were very mature. They, they, they'd been brought out into the marketplace. There was a dispute about how the residuals should be paid, so we had to negotiate new terms. So the issue was ripe, but uh, we just didn't, just didn't have a, a fruitful avenue to negotiate at that early point.
1: Well, there's been a lot of discussion or maybe it's conventional wisdom that the new media piece of this was the most important piece, but if you look about at the amount of money that's being made in new media, it's got to be far less than, than was tossed away in the weeks on strike. So Aaron, why don't you take that? Why, why did writers care so much that they would give up so much real money in pursuit of something that might turn out to be a, a camera?
3: Well, what you just said is what uh, the companies said to us in 1984 about uh, home video. They said it's, you know, it's unproven. We don't even know which format we're going to use. There's no money in it. So we can't give you a good deal in home video because it's an unproven, untested market and and, uh, cut to... 20 years later, and uh, writers have lost $2 billion, I believe, something around there, in, in revenue with that rollback that we got with the, uh, the home video deal, we basically didn't want to get screwed again. And we see that content on the internet, our works on the internet, is, is probably going to be around a while. And we did not want to, uh, to, to sell out our future, even though right now it's a, it's, a, it's a nascent marketplace and there's not a lot of money in it yet, but there will be someday. And, and with, the, with the Internet merging with the, the living room experience, it's only a matter of time before television and, and, and watching you know, movies and television online are the same thing. So we knew that we had to fight for our future because, because we got screwed in our past. Patrick, did you want to jump in on that?
4: Well, I'm not sure it's uh, quite that simple. I I don't want to be the studio apologist here, but since we don't have anyone from the studios, uh, let me at least offer uh, my uh, When Worlds Collide analogy about this, which is the timing of this was really important. Yes, the writers definitely felt that they had been royally screwed in the past, and they had gone out of their way to get rid of their old union leadership, and uh, elect a much more aggressive, militant leadership who were ready to strike, who were ready to take this issue to the studios. You have to also remember that the studios, especially the television networks, see their business model falling apart. Their advertising is going down, down, down. They look at record companies and how their business model has collapsed. They look at our newspapers And see how our business model is collapsing, and they have definitely have grave fears about how they're going to deal with the future. And I believe all of those great internet videos that we saw, where all of the uh, studio chiefs go before Wall Street and say we're going to be making tons of money on the internet in just a few years. And I know they say that, but I also have seen the real, the most uh, visionary of the studio chiefs, Peter Chernin at News Corp gave a fascinating speech in London a few months ago where he said we don't know what the future is we're willing to take a quarter of our business and just throw it against the wall and see what works. Uh, There is a a grave concern on the part of the studios that they didn't know what the future was and certainly the writers had a grave concern of uh, we know what happened to us in the past I think that was a big collision and I I think that was going to happen no matter what. But
3: but you have to understand that that the offer that we were the, the proposals that we were making were uh, a percentage of revenue. So if they were making zero, we were making zero. If they were making $10, we would make you know, 2% of that. It wasn't like we were trying to stick them with some kind of you know, outrageously high flat fee that would, uh, would be more than the, the uh, revenue that they were generating. So you know, we, we came in with a very fair when you make money, uh, we'll make money kind of proposal, and they said no. They said no. And and I I, I certainly agree with that. I think that when
4: we get into the issue of tactics, I I think they underestimated the the strength and the solidarity of the union. I really think they thought the the guild leadership would be unable to keep their union out in a long strike. And they they tested. I think they tested that theory, and they were proven wrong.
1: David, you look like you wanted
5: to say
4: something. Yeah,
1: a couple
5: of things. The the first is, I'm probably, I think, the only lawyer on the panel, so I want to start by uh, disclosures. I, I, I do not sit here as a representative of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, but I have been for many years a, a producer. But I now I'm a professor at, at UCLA and uh, I, I speak as an observer of goals and tactics. And I, I think it's important for me to say that I come from a, a long line of progressives and I don't cross picket lines. And during the a supermarket strike, I, I avoided the markets on strike, so I had great sympathy for the goals of the Writers Guild. That said, I think it is it is an academically worthy and justifiable thing to look at what happened in, in an analytical way and question the effectiveness of the decisions made by both sides. And I, for one, looking back and sort of observing it while they occurred, I shook my head and said. History is just repeating itself, and to my way of thinking, a lot of the things that were happening on both sides were a sad repetition of something we've seen over several strike cycles. And I can go into a greater detail from a traditional an- analysis of labor negotiations, but I want to give, I mean, if, if this is the time, sure, I'll do go ahead. I think there is, of course, there are, of course we said in our little chat before we met, there are two versions to every story. Saying that negotiation started in August may be literally true, but in my view, with respect, it's, it's not substantively true. Maybe on both sides. In traditional negotiation theory, there is something called an X move and something called a Y move. And if anyone who has studied formal negotiations, they will know that an X move is an aggressive or an assertive move and a Y move is a conciliatory move. And basically, if you analyze where the uh, alliance and the union really began to catch fire between each other, they both collided with a classic X move. And I'm not even going to say who went first, but let's just say that the studios at some point, early point, took the position that they only wanted to pay residuals when they were in cash break-even. Classic X move. Classic, designed to be rejected by the other side. Are we with each other?
3: Yeah. That was one of the rollbacks. Okay,
5: but fine. And the union, for its part, decided that it, its wise opening move would be, here's what we want, double the DVD rate for the moment, just focusing on the DVD rate. Now, reasonable people can say, well, there's room to give, but from the studio standpoint, that was an X move. Result, X move meeting X move, calamity, nothing much happened. They were both just duking it out with X moves. Then there was some, a period of quiet, and real negotiations started, although they weren't fast and they weren't fruitful. But though I wasn't in the room, outsiders believed that there was some back and forth between the commencement of negotiations and on or about December 5th. And on or about December 5th, we read the following, that the WGA, either formally or informally, asked for the following things. One, they wanted jurisdiction over reality TV and animation. two. They wanted to base its residual formula for internet downloads on the larger revenue of distributors' gross rather than producers' gross. Three, they wanted tiered residual formula based on usage for shows streamed on the web. Four, they wanted a provision stipulating that third parties establish the fair market value of programs and sales involving vertically integrated companies. And five, knowing that SAG negotiations are coming up in June, they wanted to be able to have a sympathy strike without penalty. They could simply strike again and not be in breach. Well, that isn't an X move. If you analogize it to clothing, that's an XXXXX X, 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 X move. And the response that they had to anticipate, if those were actually given, was Aloha.
0: You're listening to David Ginsburg, professor of entertainment and media law at UCLA. Aaron Mendelson, board member of Writers Guild of America West and co-founder of writer-owned production and distribution company Virtual Artists, Los Angeles Times columnist Patrick Goldstein, and Charles B. Slocum, assistant executive director for the Writers Guild of America West, with moderator John Healy. This is Socalo Radio the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. This Thursday, March 20th, Socalo presents Grammy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated composer Michael Giacchino, who wrote the score for The Incredibles and Ratatouille. And on Wednesday, March 26th, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle visits Socalo to put forth his views on the politics of health care. Admission to these and all Socalo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot We'll return to John Healy and our industry panel in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
4: You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News on air, online, and now on the phone, too.
0: The new governor of New York is legally blind. In the political game, where body language and nuance are like a second language, how will David Patterson navigate the helm of the Empire State? You'd be surprised at the technology crafted for the blind. I'm Pat Morrison. Los Angeles Congressman Howard Berman takes the chairman's gavel on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's here to talk about what his international priorities are as new bloodletting hits the Mideast and the Iraq War enters its sixth year. He's here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org.
1: I'm Ted Chen in for Larry Mantle. Coming up Monday on AirTalk, Larry talks about a recent study which shows many products like soaps and shampoos that claim to be green really aren't so environmentally friendly. Then, if you think the laws of physics are unbreakable, you'll want to hear from the author of a new book who says what's impossible today might be plausible in the future. Possibilities include teleportation and telekinesis. Beam into AirTalk at 10 a.m. Monday on 89.3 KPCC.
0: Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic and roving cultural forum. We now return to David Ginsberg, Professor of Entertainment and Media Law at UCLA, Aaron Mendelson, Board Member of Writers Guild of America West, and Co-Founder of Writer-Owned Production and Distribution Company, Virtual Artists, Los Angeles Times Columnist, Patrick Goldstein, and Charles B. Slocum, Assistant Executive Director for the Writers Guild of America West, with moderator, John Healy.
3: David, those proposals were on the table from day one. It's not like that was an X move that we made on December 5th. Those were proposals that were part of the uh, pattern of demands that were on the table from day one. That was part of our original X move. So it was on December 5th or thereabouts when talks broke off that the AMPTP waived those five proposals as being you know, especially egregious and, and uh, said that we had to pull those in order for the companies to continue to negotiate with us. So it was certainly not a move that was made offensively by us, it was a move that was made offensively by the AMPTP, waving those around like... Well, either one of them was offensive and the other was defensive. That's but right.
5: There was a statement made as follows by, by, by Patrick Verone. He said in paraphrasing, but you'll tell me whether it's accurate, he said, animation and reality were on the table in August, they were on the table in October, they were on the table in November, they're on the table now, and they will be in our next contract. Well, you have to be careful when you say things like that because it's not in the contract. And what I'm getting at is not whether he was entitled to say that, or not whether it's a worthy goal, but I think on both sides, Until an environment was created where a meaningful discussion could be had, it was going to be public and or private X moves facing X moves, and that's not an environment for moving labor negotiations forward.
2: I think there's a lot of of, of truth in what you're saying. Let me just note that we got two and a half of those five things. So whatever X moves are, you do get some of them, apparently. So if you consider them blocking moves, I mean, we'd already taken DVD off the table prior to that, a month earlier than that December date, and we were doing other things that were signaling that we were prepared to negotiate. What would happen is both of the two times, the two major times that talks broke down, was when the companies left the table and put a classic X proposal on the table that was designed to be rejected by us. So for whatever reason, the companies wanted to pull the plug on the negotiations twice. We never left the table. We were always willing to be sitting there Continue talking, work through things, find something to talk about. It, it was the studios that said, "You know, we're not going to continue talking." I mean, literally on the on the on that December seventh uh, Friday, they had given us this ultimatum of six things we had to agree we would never talk about again, and they didn't wait for our answer. That's right. They Thanks. didn't wait to us for, if we wanted to concede and say we'll take all six things off. They had said, we're not going to wait for your answer. Send us a letter if you're ever going to agree. Because they knew we wouldn't and couldn't. We had spent two hours the day before on one of those topics. They knew that it was not something that we could agree to, you know, at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon in the the middle of the negotiation. It was tantamount to conceding the the central issues. So for whatever their their tactical desire, I think the companies did want to blow it up the two times that the negotiations broke down. That was never our goal.
5: Well, Patrick, I don't want to take your time, but there's...
4: No, again, this was, uh, by the way, as a reporter, uh, you know, I would talk to the big shots at the studios, and I'd talk to the writers, uh, TV writers, screenwriters I knew, and, you know, it was the classic uh, men are from Venus and women are from Mars. I always felt like I was having a completely different conversation with each side, and it seemed to bode very poorly for there being any settlement. I think everyone had their own motivations. I think the biggest tactical error the studios made was putting on, t- trying to take residuals uh, off the table because I don't think they realized that was the single issue that united the, uh, what I would call the upstairs and the downstairs of the Writers Guild. The working writers and the non working writers. To, them, ev- to everyone in the guild, residuals was a grail. that You mean, was you mean not causing
5: residuals to be based only af- after break-even? Right. Yes,
4: okay. Yes. which in, in the mind, I think of... of X move. Of, yes, it was an X move. And I remember when the strike vote was being taken, one of my writer friends called me and he said, you know, I got two pieces of uh, things in the mail. I got the uh, letter of whether I should um, approve a strike vote, and I got one of my residual checks. He said, so you know what I'm going to be voting. I think everyone felt that was a... Uh, a Grievous error on the part of the studios because you don't want to unite your enemy, and I think it did. I think that was one big tactical mistake on the studio side.
5: Given everything we've heard so far, I found sad that the writers were either felt themselves forced into the situation or found themselves forced in the situation, slight difference between the two, where they had their own ox had to be gored so that a couple months later, the directors doing whatever the directors tend to do in their negotiations, were somehow able to make a deal after doing an industry study, after retaining Ken Ziffrin, after making a presentation, and getting a template, if not 100% in congruence with the ultimate arrangement the Writers Guild made, fairly close. Now, I know that the immediate answer is that would never have happened without the writers bloodying themselves and some would say the city in a prolonged strike. But I have to ask the question is it inconceivable that next time around just for the hell of it that the Writers Guild in August hire Alan Wertheimer to do a study, to sit down, to make the same sort of stylistic negotiation that the directors did the worst that could happen is they have to gore themselves three or four or five months later. But maybe the best thing that happened is things will work out the way they do for the directors. And the you know I just I I've looked at these
2: strikes and the same cycle
5: happens. In 1988 there was 22 weeks of striking and the Directors Guild
2: waltzed in and made a deal. It's try to. All right, but let me answer your question. The the none of the factors you cited were the deciding factor in the DGA progress. It wasn't Ken Zifferin. It wasn't the study. We had the same conclusions that the DGA reached from their study um, you know, months earlier, from our own research. And it wasn't Ken Zifferin who, who, who made the difference. It was the fact that the DGA had the opportunity to sit down with the actual people who are running the business, mm-hmm. who were the CEOs, and we were sitting down with the labor lawyers who only have the permission to say no. And by the and way so, – so, so, yes, if we had had the opportunity to sit down with the people running the companies – Earlier, we would have had
3: a deal earlier we, we David, we asked to meet with the CEOs back in september we We made the, the the exact same reach to the CEOs to to sit in a room informally and talk with the CEOs in September and they turned us down. the, the MPTP and Nick counter turned us down. I mean it was so we actually tried to 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 foment the exact informal Setting, talk directly to the decision makers that the DGA ended up getting long before our contract was up, and they wouldn't give it to us. They said, no, go talk to Nick Counter and the lawyers. But let, let me just make one,
2: one, one final observation about the, the, the other part of the problem with the, the AMPTP structure. You know, if we, if we approached one company and we had four things that were, that were important to us, maybe we end up getting two of them and we make a deal with a different company, maybe we get a different two of the four things. And with another company, we get a different two. It, with, it, with the AMPTP, each company can veto any given move. And so this company, you know, kills this possible pr- agreement. This company kills this possible agreement. This company kills a different one. And by the time all the companies take all the things off the piece of paper that they don't want to agree to, you have a blank piece of paper to agree to. So you end up with the lowest common denominator deal given the multi-company structure of the AMPTP. But
5: in the end... Collective bargaining in the entertainment industry is done by mutual consent of the collective bargaining units and the AMPTP. So somehow, some way, you ended up with a common ground that you could that you could recommend to your members.
3: I'm not sure it was ever mutual consent. The collective bargaining process. I don't know if it was ever, you know, mutual consent. I well, think it was. Did your
5: members not agree to the agreement?
3: No, I'm talking about the process of of all the the studios and networks and their lawyers sitting in a room and negotiating uh, together. And one one company can have veto power over the entire thing, and that fact that they negotiate separately with the different uh, trade unions, yet they get to bargain together, that was a process I don't think that was ever a, a agreed upon, uh, at least not uh, with, with open arms, by any trade union, and isn't really done in other industries that often. You know, usually it's it's one company negotiating with one union, so the process has been broken for a long time it's not a it's not an ideal negotiating process it has largely worked to the favor of the companies for the for the past fifty years And the fact that sag stood by us this time around and and uh, the, the teamsters and a lot of other unions i think was sort of a was a, a way of kind of demonstrating to the studios and networks that we could sort of do our own version of collective bargaining I think that got us a, you know a few extra days of the of the strike, but it's never been a great process. It was always Lou Wasserman coming in and, and and like saying, "Okay, what do you guys want? What do you guys want? Okay, that's acceptable. That's not so acceptable. Let's go home." Lou Wasserman wasn't in the process until the very end when, when Les Moonves and Bob Iger and and Alan Wertheimer on our side. Talked about like did a real negotiation. Sat down and did a, a, a real negotiation instead of the kabuki theater and, that and Peter P- Chernin created. And Peter Chernin exactly. Well, let me ask let me ask everybody. D- do you think that the the landscape
5: of the entertainment industry, looked at from a high altitude, has changed post strike, given the some of the moves the studios and and uh, and other employers made during the strike? And do you think that things will return to the baseline, the pre-strike baseline, or that there have been some subtle and not yet fully understood permanent
2: changes? I definitely think there have been some subtle and not yet fully understood changes. I think that the studios will look back at this as the time when they gave a lot of writers the idea that they could do business without the studios. Well, let's talk about that. accelerated that, that, that trend.
1: One, that's something that we heard a lot of rhetoric about that during the strike, that that runners would discover how to use the internet to disintermediate the studios, to retain more control over their work. Was that just talk? Is that actually happened?
2: Here's a structural difference that, that makes this possible. In the traditional media, the studios have created successfully a lot of barriers to entry. It's very hard to start up a new, a new movie studio right? It's very hard to start up a television network because you can't get the, network, the broadcast licenses and the best channels on cable. It's very hard to get, a, you know, an output deal from HBO that's going to pay you as much as a big studio with a lot of throughput uh, can get. That's not as true on the Internet. Now, you know, we're, we're not, we're not uh, you know, believing all the hype and think that this is going to change the industry radically quickly. But this is the beginning of people looking at the Internet without the barriers to entry Finding outside investment money that can fund the productions. And it's going to have to be a transitional business plan initially where traditional media plays a part in it. But in the long term, it's not clear that studios can create the same barriers to entry. On internet delivery that they have created in traditional media, and that's the opening. And in that, television, that, that writers have woken up to it, in this in television, because of the
3: strike. The early day, if you remember the early days of television, you had Texaco Theater, you had you know Geritol Presents, you had a lot of direct relationship between content creators and sponsors, and then very quickly networks imposed themselves in the middle of that process. I just came back from uh, spending a number of days in New York meeting directly with ad agencies and brands to tell them about my my venture virtual artists and the fact that Hollywood writers and talent want to start talking directly with advertisers you know the the ones that have paid for television for many years and we were received with with open arms and and uh, effusive greetings and yes we would love to work directly with writers to create innovative uh, ad campaigns, to, to work with writers to seamlessly integrate product into content where it doesn't feel like you're being slapped in the face with it, to cut out the expensive middlemen and maybe even underwrite production. You know, we're talking to a number of sponsors who are interested in funding shows that we could bring to the internet, that they can have some kind of prime sponsorship relationship with that piece of content and maybe even follow it wherever it goes, and maybe even someday onto network television if we want to sell that as an ancillary deal.
4: Well, the Internet's a great leveler. And, exactly. And, oh. and, and outside money is a great leveler. In Hollywood, in the studio system, uh, it used to be the studios had everything. They had the talent, they had the money, they had the distribution. Now the talent is gone. They don't have actors under... 10-year talent contracts anymore. That's over. The money has now opened up where one of the movies that was up for Best Picture this year, Michael Clayton, now it was still distributed by a studio, but the studio didn't want to put up any money for the movie, and the filmmaker, the, the writer, turned out to be the writer-director, went... To his agent who's been cultivating relationships with billionaires who want to get into the movie business, he went and met with one guy, a real estate developer who had a lot of money. He pitched him the story, and the real estate developer said, I'd like to make that movie. And based on that, he had $20 million and he had George got George Clooney and he made a movie. Now, that's the beginning of a big breakdown in the in those gate in that gatekeeper mentality at the studios. And I think we're gonna see the same thing happen on the television side.
5: So what happened to Sidney Kimmel's business?
4: Well, again, you still have to make good choices. You, you, a lot of the outside money is coming from equity companies and they're not so interested in winning an Oscar. They just want to diversify their investments so they will buy a piece of every movie that a studio puts out because you then spread your risk around. It's, it definitely is much more difficult to pick movies if you're only picking four or five movies and if you're picking 20 or 30. We, we agree. But again, with Internet being a leveler, how many people out there have watched some great, dumb two-minute video that someone passed along to you? Studios have to spend tens of millions of dollars to market a new show or a new movie your friend passes it along to you, that two-minute clip. That's called viral marketing. That is a very radical change that's going to, again, change the kind of content we're going to see. And it's the most
3: powerful and effective kind of marketing. Viral marketing, word of mouth from a friend, trumps any other kind of marketing efforts that advertiser... But but as
1: Patrick just noted, the cost structure online is very different from the cost structure of working for the studios. If the writers are looking at embracing the Internet and using the Internet... As their new direct to the consumer outlet, are they still expecting to get paid the tens of thousand dollars per thirty minute episode uh,
3: some probably, but what we 're doing is we're we're incentivizing writers to take less upfront in exchange for significantly more ownership in their projects, and that 's something that writers haven 't had in fifty years, and uh, we're getting a lot of interest
2: and it 's not an either or or choice. the writer can still take. You know, three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars of studio money for a script and and use half of it to finance the next thing he wants to do on the
0: internet. That's right. You're listening to David Ginsburg, professor of entertainment and media law at UCLA. Aaron Mendelson, board member of Writers Guild of America West and co-founder of writer-owned production and distribution company, Virtual Artists Los Angeles Times columnist, Patrick Goldstein and Charles B. Slocum, assistant executive director for the Writers Guild of America West with moderator, John Healy For information or to listen to past broadcasts just click on our website, socalola.org that's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot We'll return to John Healy and our industry panel in a moment. Stay tuned to SoColor Radio. Do you have an old car, truck, or boat taking up space in your garage? Give it to KPCC. Donating your used vehicle goes a long way toward paying for the news and information you count on each day. It takes just a couple of minutes to schedule a pickup, and we'll send you a receipt for your income taxes. Find out more online at kpcc.org or call 877-KPCC-CAR. Thanks.
3: Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh, my
0: God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little, too.
4: Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on
0: 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up.
4: Think elections. Think balanced, in-depth coverage on the issues and candidates that matter to you. Election coverage on 89.3
3: KPCC and at KPCC.org.
0: I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to David Ginsberg, Professor of Entertainment and Media Law at UCLA, Aaron Mendelson, Board Member of Writers Guild of America West, and Co-Founder of writer-owned production and distribution company, Virtual Artists, Los Angeles Times columnist, Patrick Goldstein, and Charles B. Slocum, Assistant Executive Director for the Writers Guild of America West, with moderator, John Healy.
4: There's a TV show, uh, Quarter Life, by Marshall Herskovitz and Ed Zwick. Now, they are old TV veterans who did 30-something in my so-called life. They're TV guys. But they took a failed TV pilot and put it on the Internet and chopped it up into six, eight-minute episodes and experimented. Uh, the jury's out, on whether it was a successful experiment or a failure, but the Internet is so cheap that you can experiment. You can find out who your audience is. The network's are petrified of Google. Not because Google has so much money, which they do, (laughs) but because Google has a kind of structure. Networks are an advertising medium, and it's a very old-fashioned medium. The advertiser advertises, and they do it in a giant, big, spread out way, and they hope they get some of you. But Google knows everything there is to know about the consumer who's been doing a search. And they give you a lot more targeted, specific advertising that trumps the kind of old-fashioned advertising right. model over and over again. That's the kind of thing that you could marry to writers who are gonna work in a specific genre or subject matter where there's some real possibilities. That's right.
5: Just one thought about quarter life. I actually watched all the, the webisodes and, and sort of judged it as it was originally made, but some people would look at that and say one of two things. Either that at the end of the day, their holy grail was to convert it into a TV show which doesn't really speak that highly of the original model the other way to look at it is they were able and the networks were incentivized to help them turn it into a TV show because the strike left their cupboards bare Mm
4: -hmm. or you could say that they took a lemon and tried to make lemonade Mm -hmm. and you could also
1: note that there are Many, many, many folk who've come from TV to the Internet and tried to do what these guys succeeded at doing. And the ones who succeeded, I think there are two of them.
0: Now it's time for questions from the Sokalo audience.
6: I'm Jonathan Handel, and I've been a commentator on The, um, on the Strike pretty extensively, a blogger. One of the things that became clear from The Strike and that several of you have touched on, but I wanted to put more comprehensively and ask you about was that the, the mechanisms of Hollywood labor are pretty dysfunctional and pretty broken. The AMPTP, you have to look at and say, well, you know, a deal only happened once the executive director of that organization, whose job is supposedly to negotiate deals on behalf of eight entities, but deals only happen once he got out of the way or was pushed out of the way or was told to get out of the way. The Writers Guild is split into two separate guilds, which are from time to time at war with each other, East and West. The two actors' guilds are at war with each other over how assertive an approach to take. Uh, the directors' guild is a guild of people who are managers and who have a somewhat dubious status as a labor union under, under labor law, which is a topic people don't like to talk about at all, but is, uh, you know, is an awkward one, and has never has struck only once in 70 years, and that was for five minutes, which is one of the reasons the studios wanted to do the deal with the uh, directors first. Finally is the IA, which doesn't like the writers at all. So the question really is, why is the mechanism so dysfunctional? And what can be done to make labor negotiations more frictionless in the future, both for the traditional industry and also to the extent that you want to invite people from the technology industry to become part of this labor structure?
4: Did, did you mention dysfunctional and leave out SAG? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just checking.
2: Well, I have a thought on that. First of all, let me just make one amendment to the, to the premise, which is that I wouldn't personalize the AMPTP problem on Nick Counter particularly. I much more believe that it's the structure of the AMPTP and their marching orders than it is Nick Counter personally. Every one of the factors in the scenario that you, you set up has its own unique Causes And each one's going to have its own solution. There's no single answer to, to solve that whole complex mess. So there, there's no easy way to fix it. David,
1: any thoughts?
5: Well, yeah, I, it takes a longer analysis than we have the time for here. And Let me also say I think I would be remiss if I were not to recognize that Jonathan's analysis all throughout the strike was something that people at least – I had my students turn to on a regular basis. He's to be commended for a thoughtful, analytic dissection of the agreements and the postures as they came out. So hats off to you and your blog. You and
3: Nikki Fink were the, 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 yeah. the, the true... Uh,
5: I'm still know. waiting for Nikki Fink to write a, a, a nice word that maybe somewhere, somehow, a producer does something right. But <laughs> <laughs> it may be coming. And I, and I think she does a great job on her blog as well. But the one thing I would say is, I think part of the dysfunction comes from the fact that the entire American labor movement arose in a time and with objectives that are fundamentally different than what labor unions are about today. In the 30s and the 40s, when we were talking about issues like minimum pay rates and hours per week and uh, the advent of health care, things like that, it, it was easier to understand what labor unions were going after. Now, when we're in an environment where the difference, I mean, the general public sees the difference between uh, 0.32% of distributors' growth after 24 runs, but not before the first three years, it's sort of an abstraction that, without being trying to make it look ridiculous, is a different sort of set of objectives
2: for the labor unions than 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And I think that is part of the problem. Well, we, I, I agree with that completely. We very much have a different focus. It really gets back to something that, that Patrick alluded to earlier, which is that the structure of the industry you know, changed historically. And this industry moved to a situation where everyone, most of the people in the industry work, on a freelance basis, project by project. The, the primary reason why the, the unions exist in this town is to set industry-wide standards. It would be chaotic if people had to face different policies and different rules and different pay standards, let alone different sources of health insurance or pension benefits, company by company. People don't work for the same studio for a long time anymore. So it's the industry-wide standards and benefits that are the, the real hook that the unions have into this town so that a writer knows what residuals they're going to get, what baseline compensation they can count on when they go from one studio to the next. It's not about minimum wage in our our context. And
5: therefore, Chuck, with great respect to Aaron, that's why the AMPTP, when it suits the unions, is the panacea because the AMPTP can deliver industry-wide results. In other words, I understand both arguments, but what Aaron was saying is, well, in all other industries, uh, labor negotiates company by company. But the fact of the matter is the AMPTP delivers industry-wide results, and that's what you just
2: argued for. That, that's absolutely right. If the AMPTP had instructions to make a deal, to make a good deal, to make a deal that the studios could live with, then there, there'd be a way to negotiate. I mean, literally, they have, they have the authority to say no, and any single company can block any given move. And so it's, it's a structure designed to only say no. To me, that's the fundamental structural problem.
4: Yeah, and one other thing I don't think we really touched on that I think played a big psychological role in this whole debate, which is, by and large, the companies that run Hollywood are very fearful of change. The whole history of Hollywood, they have fought. They have been on the wrong side of almost every kind of innovation and change, going back to talking pictures, to television, to uh, famously, to the VCRs. They didn't even want to change from black and white to color when color was invented. And again, they like things to stay the same way when they think they're working. You know, they still deliver, when you go to a movie theater, they still deliver a canister of film. It looks like exactly what they were doing 75 years ago. They are not the people who are going to embrace change. It's going to come from Silicon Valley. It's going to come from somewhere else.
0: Hello, gentlemen. My name is Tanya Barnes. My question is, when the strike started, it occurred to me that the members of the AMPTP, at least seven of them, own the major news networks. And I'm just curious, especially to the journalists, how do you feel about the coverage of the strike in the mainstream media? I thought
1: Patrick absolutely rocked.
3: I agree. <laughs> I thought Patrick did a great job. Um, well,
4: again, the LA Times is uh, certainly not owned by a major uh, television network where now owned by a very interesting uh, entrepreneur. Um, There was a lot of discussion of whether Variety, which is the major trade publication, was suspiciously um, sympathetic to the studio's point of view. Again, I think they have very good reporters. I think they were simply reflecting their institutional bias more than trying to slant their coverage. And I think the writers, I have to say, the writers kicked the studio's butt when it came to PR in the strike. There was no contest. Studios ended up going out and having to hire some very pricey Democratic uh, political consultants because they were so desperate to contest. I think the writers certainly won the PR battle. So I think if the the networks, although you would assume, yes, that, gee, Les Moonves' network would want to make him look better, I I don't think they were big factors in the coverage of the strike. I, I think this was actually, in many ways, because the television networks are, have so little interest in that subject. It was a print media strike, which is sort of old-fashioned in a way. It was very, you know, covered by the print media and certainly by the internet. Mm-hmm. We didn't fare so well with Nikki Fink, I guess, in terms of her thoughts about the LA Times. But we um, weren't alone. Yeah, but we had plenty of competition. I, I don't. Again, I think the uh, uh, the media was surprisingly not such a big player in terms of slanting the coverage.
1: And I also think that institutional biases are a lot more readily apparent to the folk outside than us because we're a collection of individuals. I know if somebody looks back through my stuff, they'll be able to see patterns that I don't see. But I know also that nobody is calling down from above saying. John, you need to say this about the strike on the editorial pages today. What they were saying is, you know, can we keep writing about the strike because everybody is interested in that topic. Well, one thing
5: that's interesting about the strike and the coverage is I told uh, my students that where 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the only place they could probably turn for coverage of a strike was the trade papers and maybe the, the, the major dailies. I actually said to them, get some perspective. Sure, look at the L.A. Times. Definitely look at Variety and the Reporter. But also look at Nicky Fink. And also look at Jonathan's blog. And also look at the Writers Guild. There were several Writers Guild-centric blogs. You know, like any jury that's taking in a lot of disparate facts, they could form a more sort of accurate version in their own Mm -hmm. minds of what they perceive the relevant issues and if you will the truth to be and 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 it was only because of the atomization of the internet that that was even possible this time around
2: I, i think that's absolutely right i think i can say that the guild felt like it had to go through traditional media to get its message out less than ever before because we could put our word out directly to our members and the public and the industry interest groups as directly as we ever could by putting on our own website, by having other websites cover it. So, the internet provided a great answer. I'm Bill Taub. I'm a longtime TV writer,
6: member of the WGA. I am a full supporter of the soldiers, but not necessarily of the war. I feel that the guild folded too soon. I would like to ask. I compliment Chuck. You did a great job for much less than two million dollars that the DGA paid. I compliment a lot less. Chuck, a you. lot less. Um, <laughs> I'm just sorry for what they settled for. Patrick, you're one of the few who, for the LA Times, who really did a great job. You have come out in full support of the DGA template, which I think is a terrible template for us to have accepted and which is why the studios went to them first. I would like to know why you think that's such a good deal.
4: My uh, column where I urged the Writers Guild leadership to get back to the negotiating table was, um, in my mind, widely misinterpreted by certain parties. I felt that, that there, it was strategically time to negotiate because I felt that once... It wasn't that the DGA got a, a great deal. It was that the DGA negotiations showed that the studios were willing to shove Nick Counter aside and negotiate directly with the Directors Guild representatives. And I thought that represented an incredible opportunity for the Writers Guild. Everybody can argue whether the Writers Guild got a good deal or not, I think when you look at the recent history of labor negotiations in this country, they got a very good deal. I think the uh, alternative w- would have been awful. I think the studios would have sat, you know, would have tried to wait them out forever. I think they got a, a surprisingly good deal under the circumstances. And the only w- reason I was supporting the DGA deal was because I thought the big breakthrough was they could negotiate directly with the studio representatives and that represented a giant change
3: I don't know if, uh, if you've heard the news but the deal was ratified today by the membership of the of the Writers Guild East and West uh, with a 93 percent approval I think we the, found
1: one of the no bill. votes tonight
3: yeah one of the no Bill uh, you know mm-hmm. and, and the reality is you know we were at the point of the negotiation where we had maximum leverage because the, the TV season was about to fall apart. The Oscars were about to go away, go, go by the way of, uh, of uh, the Golden Globes. And we were able to make some significant gains over the DGA deal, which was already, in, in a lot of our minds, a pretty good starting place. But Patrick's exactly right. Uh, we, were, we would have passed a certain date, and it probably would have gone from a 100-day strike to a six-month strike and then waiting for SAG and not knowing what they were going to do and, and you know, how devastating that was on on the economy and, and, and the below the lines and, and everyone else, you know, we reached a point where, you know, yeah, we're not happy about the 24-day window and, and, and some other points in the contract, but we're very, very pleased about getting distributors gross. We're very pleased that in the third year of the contract, it switches to, you know, on streaming, ad-supported streaming, it switches from a flat fee to a percentage. So there were, you know, we got jurisdiction over the internet.
1: I'll just close with this one note to bear in mind with audiences fragmenting and advertisers running to all sorts of new venues to get a 3-year contract that gives you more basic money every year, just that in and of itself is something probably to celebrate.
0: You've been listening to David Ginsberg, Professor of Entertainment and Media Law at UCLA, Aaron Mendelson from the Writers Guild of America West, Los Angeles Times columnist Patrick Goldstein, And Charles B. Slocum, Assistant Executive Director for the Writers Guild of America West, with moderator John Healy. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter stenshol Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.
2: Programming. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the Acura TL with Bluetooth phone connectivity. Learn more
6: at Acura.com.